Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is not a dining podcast. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Right, okay, my throat is better this week. God, it was bad last week. I don't know what was wrong with me. Nothing else other than just a sore throat. But yeah, back on form today. So uh, yeah, last week was shifted and there was a really <laughs> quite an overwhelming reaction to that conversation. I think we struck a chord, touched a nerve in a positive way with quite a lot of people. So if you enjoyed that one, if you're back here for perhaps the second time after hearing that episode as your first episode of Not Diving Podcast, then welcome. And uh, yeah, I hope we've got more stuff for you that you're going to enjoy. If you want to get more involved with the show, then there is a Discord server that you can join. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord is the invite that gets you into that Discord server. And yeah, we've got a nice community of people there discussing each episode and other stuff as well so i would advise you to join if you haven't done already and if you wanted to support the show financially then you can also do that via patreon patreon.com slash scuba official there are two tiers first is the solidarity tier which is four us dollars a month which gets you some bonus stuff and the musicality tier which costs ten dollars a month gets you all the music that we release on Hot Flush Recordings, plus more stuff too. So both of those are really cheap and really good value. So if you like what we're doing, then you can help us cover the costs and promote the show by doing that, basically. So yeah, get involved. Right, this week on the show, Jeremy P. Caulfield. We are talking about minimal, in part, anyway. We're talking about music generally. But Jeremy was a big part of the minimal scene, I guess, in Berlin and in Toronto in the kind of late 90s to early 2010s. And as we hear during the conversation, he had a bit of a hiatus, but it's back on the music now. So minimal is a topic which I'm very interested in. I thought it was a really interesting period, generally speaking, in music. And there are some parallels, I think, with uh, some of the stuff that we are experiencing today, or at least maybe some of the conditions are being recreated that might lead to some kind of minimal-esque reaction potentially in fact i've just teased my my first question this week but anyway yeah jeremy's a great guy and it's great to have him on the show so i think you're going to enjoy this one as much as you did last one perhaps if you did enjoy last one you probably did otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this one anyway i've already mentioned the patreon and a discord you can also follow the spotify playlist which there is a link to in the show notes which contains much of the music that we talk about on the show and all the episodes too so that's a good thing to do as well if you're enjoying the Not A Diving podcast. And um, yeah, I guess that's kind of it. So without further delay, here is Jeremy P. Caulfield. Jeremy. 
Jeremy P. Caulfield, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing really well. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, no worries. Where are you right now? I'm in Toronto, uh, in the suburbs in Mississauga, actually. So about 20 minutes from downtown Toronto. Well, in Toronto, everything's an hour from Toronto. Crazy traffic. Right. And that's where you're from originally, am I correct in saying? Yeah, I was born in Montreal. Um, and then went to um, Berlin, but uh, yeah, I'm from Toronto. Basically, I grew up here. Yeah, sure. Okay, so we're gonna we're definitely gonna cover that stuff. I just wanted to kick off with um, something a little bit more general. Last week on the show, I had a really interesting conversation with Shifted, where we kind of bemoaned the current state of of techno and dance music more generally. And uh, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds. Well, actually, no, that's not, that's not quite true. I do want to get deep in the weeds, but I, I want to maybe try and be a little bit, try and be a little bit more balanced this week. But I mean, my question was, there's a lot of like theorizing about um, late 90s techno and, and the, the, the conditions that gave birth to minimal. And I wanted to know whether, like, to what extent, in your opinion, is the current sort of landscape analogous to that pre-minimal period that then gave way to, you know, what then transpired? Um, I think, you know, there was, again, at that period, when everything went so techno and so big, we were seeking an escape, right? Like the the techno for us started in the clubs in the 90s, right? We didn't, we, we weren't doing the parties here. We weren't doing the big raves. Um, we knew what was going on in Europe. You know, Rich Richie is a really integral part of Toronto. Like we, I went to university in London, Ontario, uh, which is where Plus Eight was based. So John Aquaviva was running Plus Eight out of London, Ontario, and uh, and there was a big connection between Toronto, London, and Detroit. So we knew of the big parties, but in Toronto, it wasn't really big for a long time. And then eventually it got big. And I think this was when the shift to minimal happened. Um, also, it just, it was really banging then. Like it had lost a lot of soul, um, kind of similar to what's happening now, or it hadn't splintered so much, but there was definitely uh, a really, really harder sound that was coming out, uh, Primeval and kind of those labels, which were super cool. But it, uh, if you weren't playing a big party, you just didn't have a place for it. And so I think a lot of us shifted to a little bit more of a deeper sound. And that was the minimal sound to us was not really the minimal that hit later in the mid 2000s in Berlin, this minimal sound was just kind of more of a stripped down sound, you know, it was just techno reduced a bit. Right. Yeah. Okay. So as, as opposed to a sort of new genre in itself, it was a different approach to techno. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So then, okay. So was it, was it a function of just the parties progressively getting bigger and sort of crazier, more frenzied? Is, is, is that a, is that a fair sort of observation? I think, yeah. And, and I think the thing with, with, uh, Toronto was that, you know, there was a big, Toronto had a really big drum and bass jungle scene and, this um, got carried into the raves. This was the sound of raves, you know, when somebody said like heart and it was hardcore back then. And so this was the big parties. And eventually that had to find a new demographic. They had to find other people to bring to their parties. So they started booking techno acts, you know, trance acts, techno acts. And for us, that was really strange because techno had just been underground up until that point. And so, there was this crossover 
feeling going on in these parties. And a lot of us in Toronto just weren't a part of this, you know? So we started... So sorry, what what, what year? Let me just jump in. What, what year are we in here? 95, 96, 97. 97, um, friends of ours started a shop here called Speed Records. And this became a big outlet for us because we finally had a place where we didn't have to go and be accepted in somebody else's record shop. Up until that time, there was Play the Record, Play the Record, which was a cool shop, lots of good stuff, but it had like a big soca contingency and a big hip hop contingency, and so like you were always this young, kind of scrawny kid going in there, and you had to fight to. They didn't. This was before they had turntables that allowed you to play your own stuff. So you had to go to the front of the shop, let them play it, and they would like just move through it so quickly, right? And they'd be like, you like it? You want it? And you're like, oh man, like I, I got to hear like a bar, right? And then the next thing that would come on would be just a big soca jam. And, you know, and then eventually what happened was that people just realized that this was not the way you could buy music. You needed you needed a, a different place. So there's a lot of little record shops that start up, but the big one for us was Speed. And that's when we started also doing parties from that blue. And I think some of the first artists uh, we had were like Surgeon, Hell, um, and then eventually it got bigger and we brought in Marco Carolla and uh, sort of like all the guys for uh, Gitano Parizano and... Um, so yeah, that was that was when the scene was to me at a really nice level because our club, the club, was busy. There was enough people coming in, and it was still kind of underground. Okay, um, to what extent was Toronto at that point, or in this general kind of a period, uh, like how similar was it to Montreal? Because we've had a bit of chat about. I had Tiger on the show actually one, in one of the very early episodes, and he gave us some really good detail about Montreal in this period. So, like, how how similar were the two places? Um, I think Montreal was always an underground house town. You know, like it it represented a little bit more of New York. It's a cooler city. It's got better style. It's not a financial center. It's a bit more like what Montreal would be the Berlin, while. F- Toronto is the Frankfurt of like the German scene per se. And so it had like a big after hours clubbing scene, Mark Anthony and a few other people. Um, And it had like this kind of Junior Vasquez tunnel limelight sort of vibe, you know, and I don't think techno was such a big thing. Tiga stepped up later on and well, he's always been around, but like Turbo really picked up a little bit later. Um, And then that really he really leaned in on that. And that, that's before he exploded with sunglasses at night, right? So he's he'd been a hardworking man for a really long time, running record shops, running parties, um, doing comps. And then I think one of the bigger crossover comps from here, like a mix CD, was Kenny Glasgow on Turbo. And so Kenny, as most people know, is one half of art department. And he was quite techno for a long time. And he still is. Uh, He kind of covers a lot of the bases. He's a great DJ, great producer, and a big part of Toronto scene. And I think he had this kind of comp on Turbo, and it was a techno comp. And that was really like sort of the first Canadian to to demonstrate to the wider masses what techno was about, you know, locally. And uh, but we had the drum, we had the jungle, and we had the drum and bass, and we had a big trance scene, and we had like a big, big rave scene. I uh, Toronto, Montreal got that too, but it just wasn't quite the same size. Okay, so can you can you sort of pinpoint 
with perhaps a, a, a sort of finer degree of specificity when the kind of when the frustration with this the kind of bigger room or bigger harder faster techno sound began to set in yeah i mean i think you know there was a combo of stuff coming out like techno was getting hard and i think it was mostly the stuff through prime distribution so it was this like really banging like and now when you listen to it it's like it's super cool because it's tight it's it's well produced but i think for many of us at that point we're kind of like i think this was also when richie sort of dropped out of techno a bit right because richie was really playing techno for a long time before he went to minimal before he went to berlin he was basically on the level of all the techno guys um, playing this really loopy, you know, and then he had Dex Effects 909, this kind of stuff. So this, there was this era, you know, and then at the same time, there was the basic channel stuff coming out and Tiki Man and, and, and sort of um, the modernist from Compact and this more stripped down sound that still had like, it wasn't housey, it still had electronic techno elements. And, and, and but it just was a little bit groovier. So, okay, so specifics on that, I'd have to like pop up Discogs right now and find that. I feel it's like 97, 98. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's that's that's certainly plausible. Yeah, I went to Berlin in 2003, and you know, in my bag at the time was still like a lot of the release records and stuff and like you know and the sort of uh stanny friends and like this the stripped down stuff that could be pitched down a little bit and and be a hypnotic groove and then there was some of the harder things and then there was like some of the weird playhouse stuff too that was just fit in like i never went into the total housey minimal like sort of playhouse um perlon-esque stuff like i was always in the sort of i guess g-man uh, you know, Qual Valdis was the like the, the epitome of that sound that I was always seeking at that time. Octave One, so you know, find that sort of stripped down tom based elemental music was what we were seeking then. Yeah, I mean, as as you said, it's like the the sort of minimal stuff was something different entirely. Really, I guess it sort of like sort of came out of that sort of uh, ethos. Of reducing techno, but actually it was kind of minimal house as opposed to minimal techno, right? Basically, a completely different thing. Um, let me ask you though, uh, just to come back to the current periods again, just to kind of link these two things together. So, I mean, as as you mentioned, like it was the the music getting sort of sillier, if I can put it like that, was largely a function of of, sort of big raves, and I think like a similar thing has happened really with the kind of increasing prevalence of, of festivals in in the DJ calendar these days but i think one of the things one of the things that's concurrently happened and i think this has been exacerbated by what happened in the pandemic is that small venues are really getting sort of pushed out like i mean they still certainly exist but i think it's it's more difficult to run a small club now than it has ever been since the 70s or whatever so do you think it's possible for some kind of similar musical movement to happen i mean is it just that much more difficult would it be that much more difficult it has to and i think in a lot of big cities it's combined with the housing crisis right so there's more things being built in 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 areas that were predominantly 
set, uh, created by the creative class, you know? So they get the warehouses, they bring in the clubs, they, and then slowly after that, like, the bars open up, and then maybe... Um, the coffee shops for the daytime and then the nightclubs of course and this happens all over the world get pushed out of those areas right and it's we're really in an industry that has one thing just not on its side and that's sound <laughs> you know like it's just the it's so physical and 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 you, everybody knows the amount of mass you need to put into a building to keep it sound inside you know and as you start getting apartments and and this is what happens like a lot of the creative class or they want to move into these hip areas but they also want their sleep you know and they forget a little bit of their their origins or where they come from and then you know it it just rolls so i think it becomes harder to run a club in a city um that doesn't have sort of um industrial area close by that is not a big big challenge for people to get to so it's a it's a it's a question of urbanism and and density and not just financial matters i mean the financial matters come because a lot of the times clubs have to purchase more space than they really need to create buffer zones around them right and they have to like grab the upstairs of an office and so all of a sudden they're like their rent's gone from four thousand five thousand to twenty thousand because they need to get all the space and they need to um they need to um appeal to zoning laws and stuff you know so the financial aspect is not just like the direct financial aspect but just of needing to control their surroundings i think and this happens in a lot of cities and then eventually they close because the you know real estate's always going to win right yeah i mean i guess some um, that's the sort of supply side if you want of that kind of small venue ecosystem yep i mean there's a sort of demand side issue as well I think, and like the, the the festival thing is, I think it's been driven, well, first of all, by the same forces in the 90s and just you know, the, a certain kind of music getting much more popular and a certain kind of experience. But also, I think, increasingly, the kind of younger generation that's come through and probably even more so the, the new generation since the pandemic, since reopening after the pandemic, like the, the expectations... Um, of being able to sort of document your night out and you know, document your experience in a way that's clearly visible on on socials. I just hate I hate using the word social. It's just like oh god, we have to talk about this again. But it's it's un- unavoidable, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think um, like just the idea of a small dark room mm-hmm. is a bit of a stretch. I think now for your average twenty two year old you know, techno fan. Absolutely. I don't know how that, you know, I mean, it's a, it is a generalization and clearly there are um, examples of, of stuff like this happening, but I think like kind of at a broader level, it's, it's tough to see how it comes back. I mean, like with the caveat that, you know, of all, of course there's always a reaction to where, to any kind of social movement, but you know, it seems like it's hard to imagine. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. And if we, if we look at like sort of the journey of, of the punter right like so like the people that are going to techno now did they start into techno or did they did they 
come from another area? Did they come from EDM or, you know, did they, they, did they morph from one music to another or did they develop? Did they grow? Did they mature and come into techno that way? And is that maturity level possibly still not there or the confidence level to like walk into a club, you know, a dark club, maybe going to a big open air party is still a lot easier than going downtown or wherever and finding the dark club. And so I think there is a little bit of a, like if you follow things like Fuse, you know, they've also been going through the same sort of aspect of finding a space within a city that's developing and has real estate issues and has noise issues. So sorry, do you mean Fuse in Brussels? Fuse in Brussels, right? And 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 they're moving into like what is this kind of quasi club, right? It's like an industrial space. And I think maybe this is the way forward, you know? Um like the masses are there, so the clubs need to have a large enough dance floor. Um, and and it needs to be in an, a sort of industrial area because of what we're talking about. And this might be this might bridge something. It might not look exactly like our old smoky, dusty clubs per se, but it might bridge something between the festivals. And and then from there you get a splinter, you know. And I think like the side rooms of parties were always really important. Like, that's where I first got exposed to, like, house, going to jungle parties and then being like, I need to take a break. I'm going to go to the side room, see what's going on there. And then you hear somebody playing house for the first time and you're like, what the fuck, right? This is super cool. And it was like, there was no, there was no, like, transition. <laughs> there was, like, just two types of music. There was, like, jungle, hardcore, and then, like, house. Like, uh, maybe there was some stuff in the middle, but, like, so, the separation. So, possibly, like, the smaller, darker rooms are happening in these larger events, but are the side rooms, you know? But I, I agree with you completely. Like, I, I don't know where these, the smaller venues are or, or how you can survive these days with that, too. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, we're talking about, uh, you know, cities where there is a um a good underlying infrastructure for this kind of stuff i mean berlin certainly was that and you know as you as you mentioned you moved over in in 2003 so uh do you i mean when was the last time you went back to berlin um i left berlin at the beginning of the pandemic and i haven't been back since okay all right okay so right but relatively recently though. yeah yeah so I had taken a break from music during that. I like, you know, uh, my book would be called like uh, how 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 to do it all wrong, basically, <laughs> uh, <laughs> or how to how to do it ass backwards. And so I kind of took a break from everything in Berlin uh, while I was there. I, it was oversaturated for me, and I just I moved into the restaurant business. And then when I got back here, I kind of could breathe a little easier and I felt like getting back into making music, you know? So, mm. yeah. okay. Well, let's just, um, just, just focusing on the city itself for a moment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what was your, just a very broad level, what's your observation of how Berlin developed from 2003 to 2018 or wherever it was? I mean, it's crazy, right? So, my wife and I, my girl, she was my girlfriend at the time, Kyla. We used to ride the subway and be like, why, why did they, like 2003, 2004, why did they have this like really top end subway and it's empty, you know? Like, 
And we didn't know that obviously somebody had different data set than we did, right? Like, and, and this is the strength of Germany. Like, they obviously were forecasting on what was going to happen in this town. We're like, this is a really nice subway. Like, and we would always be the only ones on it, you know? And at nighttime, it wasn't busy. And then by the time I left, I mean, the subways were rammed, right? It was, it's crazy. Like, going through rush hour, it just, it happened. And so this sort of, dynamic of Berlin changed completely. Like we used to go to bars and, and sit in empty fields and the bar would run your drink over from like the kitchen and, and, and you'd be sitting in beach chairs in the middle of the city, you know, cause it was, and I had never seen so many sides of buildings in my life, like, cause there was no neighbor. And something's felt at the end of the world. Yeah, literally, because I mean, literally stuff that's left over from World War Two, right? <laughs> I mean, buildings that have been bombed and then just like... Yeah, like I'm like, oh, another side of a building. Cool. I've never seen a side of a building before, like living in a North American town, you know? And when I moved to Friedrichshain, people thought I was mad. Like, they're like, what? That's the end of the world. And we, when we finally did our parties at Watergate and we do afters, I like I ended up being like the closest house, you know? And then eventually people moved from Prenzlauberg and from Mitte out to Kreuzberg and Neukölln. So there was this sort of migration to the further east side or for Kreuzberg too, you know. And I think so, so much dynamics happened. And then this also brought the ability for people to go to the clubs out there. Like Watergate felt like really far away in 2003, which sounds nuts now, you know, because it's not. It's in the center but it felt really far and anything further than that like the ring line always felt like the castle walls to me like if you went outside the castle walls you're going to get an arrow in the heart you know <laughs> <laughs> like 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 oh don't go out there close the door close the gates you know and uh so that of course that's changed and um so again, I think it's just this: the urban fabric changed, and the clubs followed suit. And so, let me ask you that. Let me let me jump in there. Um, you mentioned the subway, and that implies a pretty high degree of sort of central planning in the development of a city. Yeah. And then you're talking about the way that um, the the, the neighbourhoods kind of widened out. The neighbourhoods that were deemed cool, anyway, kind of widened out. So, I mean, how how much of that? do you think was the result of a kind of planned development because i mean obviously the like the story of of this kind of 20 year period is that is is germany integrating the whole of east germany into the kind of unified country and that costing huge amounts of money and the amount of subsidies that came from the old west and all that kind of stuff so how much of it was it obvious to you that it was planned in that you know it, when when you when you talk about the the subway being an obvious element of planning like how much of the rest of it was well I'm, one one thing that I missed while in Germany, and my German did get good, but I didn't have the sort of like, I wasn't immersed into the fabric of the city as much as I am here. Like here I can pick up like kind of a detailed manifesto of what's going on, of urban planning and, and really and understand it. And there was more on gut instinct, you know? And I think one thing that I felt on in Berlin was one of their main missions was that they had to tie the city together. It was just too spread out. It was too spread out to make it for tourists and it was too spread out to have it relevant for people walking around. So they obviously looked at the sites and said, okay, like the East side gallery, like there is nothing there, 
you know, we're going to have to attach this. So you get this kind of strip of things. And then the, the, in the stadium, the stadium needs to go there and, and this. So there was this sort of planning, but that's really corporate planning, right? And I don't think a city really knows so much where their sort of creative planning goes. That just sort of happens. And that's where people find space. They find the spaces that they need. They find spaces for galleries. They find spaces for um, distribution. They find, you know, like Paul Linkufer where hard waxes, like those hoffs at the back, they go so far back. There's so much space and that becomes desirable. And maybe that wasn't desirable at, at another time. The same thing with Williamsburg and like sort of in, in Brooklyn, like people just, they eventually need space. They need space to lay out their plans per se of and so i think a degree of berlin was planned and of course a degree of it is spontaneous and that usually comes from the creative class yeah i mean it's kind of push and pull isn't there i mean what i a big part of what i remember of this sort of period was the amount of opposition there was to certain individual developments like the um the developments along the river in particular, I forget exactly, the media spray development, that was yeah. it. Um, which was, there was yeah. just like hysteria around that. And like every year there'd be like another kind of like set of horror stories about what this is going to entail. And um, there would be, you know, sit-ins and, and all the rest of it. And there's a real kind of cult, that kind of culture of protest in, in Berlin. That's that particular kind of protest. Um, in terms of how it like eventually shook out, I mean, like, well, I went back there. I mean, I didn't go back for ages, and then I, and then the, I had a kind of rude awakening one time going back and coming out of Warschauer Station and seeing that new mall had been built, which is I have talked about it on the show oh before, God. which is one yeah. of the worst things I've I've ever seen in my whole life. It become it became worse than could be expected, right? Like it just it ended up being worse than anybody thought. But one thing I remember was when Bar 20... So Bar 25 was like a big part of my life when things went really minimal. And, you know, I was a big part of that club because it was neat. You could just play weird and you could play at all different hours. And I remember Christoph, one of the owners one time, getting really mad at everybody because they were there on a Sunday when they should be out protesting, but everybody was at the party. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you need to get out. Like, get out there and protest the this, this spree. Like, don't be at the party. And they're like, oh, everybody's like... Oh. Right, because Bar 25 was was directly threatened by this, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it was directly threatened by this. And he was, like, trying to, like, get, you know, feet on the ground and, and get to the protest. And everybody was at the club. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is uh, this is this is actually great. Um, Bar twenty five is something that we haven't really covered at all on the show before, so it's, it'll be actually fantastic to get a, a a really detailed description of it. Actually, now that we've come across it, so tell me about what it was. Tell me about describe it to me. Well, okay, like uh, so, I was trying to think about this too. I was trying to think about like how I got in contact with Christoph, uh, like the owner, and he was doing the bookings at that. So my version of Bar 25 was the version that existed originally. So I didn't um, I didn't follow it all the way. But back then it was really just a ranch by the water. <laughs> like, you know, and everybody thought that was weird. And then I met Christoph's best friend and he was a doctor. And he said in college, Christoph would talk about he wanted a ranch by the water in Berlin. <laughs> 
And so that really messed with a lot of our brains. You could imagine the state of most people hearing the story in like the morning and stuff. And it would, it just became sort of like urban legend. Like he's always wanted this, you know? And, and it was cool because that's really what it was. It was just a ranch by the water and, and the ranch look and that feel was all wood. So there was, that definitely affected the music style. So we came from these concrete clubs, you know, had a total opposite of sort of Bergheim, which is concrete and, and, and cement. And then there was Watergate that, you know, is glass and sort of um, mirrors. And then there was this that was wood. So it had this really organic vibe. And a lot of us played this sort of organic minimal at that time. So it really shaped a lot of music. And I can't, to describe it to somebody else, it was like really open air. And the model has been followed in a lot of other cities. So, and and just just, just to clarify, like Bar 25 is like the quintessential after hours, right? So what time did it start? Well, this is really funny because when I first knew about it and, and, and Christoph invited me to play. He goes, you're going to play at six. And I said, oh, okay, cool. And I just thought it was like a bar. So one of the first times I ever went, I showed up at 6 p.m. on Saturday night thinking I was just playing music for people eating and drinking. Like this was really, I was, I had not just arrived in Berlin, but I was just starting to pull it together, you know, and meet people and network a little bit. And so I showed up at 6 p.m. and the the night manager's like, uh, she was all confused. And she's calls, she calls um, Christoph and he's like, no, no, dude, like 6 a.m. Sunday, right? And I was like, oh, okay. It's like, you know, so like repack all my stuff. I was playing vinyl all the time, like just whatever. So turn back up. Place is bumping the next morning at 6. And I think the... Most the time most people wanted to play was on Sunday, right? And it would go to Monday, and I think many of us pulled out on Tuesday. And it was a jolt to reality because it was, you know, right on Vashauer. People are going to work, uh, especially when things really started happening down that way. You know, you would be jolted into like into ultimate reality. And uh, that was always hard. But, you know, when you finish playing, you don't feel so bad. Like you've got some cash in your pocket. You're going home. It's like other times when you go see friends play and then you're coming out on a Monday or a Tuesday. You're like, what the fuck? You know, I got to get a new hobby. Like, (laughs) 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 And, And 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 so I guess that's more accepted now in Berlin. But I think what it what it also demonstrated to a lot of people around the world was like when we were talking about this sort of density thing and noise complaints a lot of people had been fighting to do things at night and and it opened up a lot of people's eyes that there's a possibility to do a party during the day and you probably get by with a lot more making a lot more noise because there's a lot more noise going on in the city so i think after that i saw a lot of daytime parties spring up and that was kind of cool because we all learned that we didn't just have to party at nighttime and that, you know, you could have a lot more freedom. And also, like, it doesn't always have to be like 
like it wasn't always cracky or whatever right like like a daytime party you can have kids you know like you can you can you can make it inviting if you want to you know so anyways yeah but back then that was what it was a ranch by the water and there's no other way to to, to describe it <laughs> uh did bar 25 predate club division era no so they're kind of concurrent to me there was two types of people and they were like and that that they chose either or and sometimes you meet somebody that that you bridge in the middle or and eventually you'd have people that would do both bar 25 was a lot more of a commitment you know Club de Visionaire was like off the bridge. It wasn't, it's not behind a fence. It's very open. I remember one time going to Club de Visionaire and seeing like a family sitting there having their beer and pretzels and like only the daughter who was sort of like maybe 15 or 16 realized there's something weird going on. But the dad was just like enjoying his, his Hefeweizen by the Spree and not catching that, like, you know, there's maybe, like, an after hours or something going on there. And the daughter is kind of looking around and everybody's trying to act normal by this family. And, you know, so that was also Club de Visionaire, you know? It could be whatever you want it to be. Bar 25 was definitely behind a closed gate. You had to pay. There was a bouncer, you know? Is there a distinct music policy between those two places, in your opinion? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I think it was quite interchangeable. I mean, uh, I think now probably there's a little bit of a difference now that things have splintered more and stuff. And uh, I think overall, Bar 25 is probably a lot more German DJs, where Club de Visionaire has a lot more... um, like expats playing in Berlin and stuff. It's a mix. I don't know anymore, so I don't want to speak incorrectly, you know. But back then, I think the vibe was interchangeable for sure, but you definitely had to have a, a bit more of a commitment to go to Bar 25. When did Bar 25 start? That, I don't know. I'd have to look it up. Um, was it, I mean, at what, po- at what point At what point were you, did you become aware of it? Was it straight after you, actually, no, you, you said that just before, didn't you? You said it was relatively recently after you came over that you actually played there, right? Yeah, 2003. So I'd have to really look. I have, it's, God, it's, it starts feeling so old now. Well, I mean, it is quite a long time ago. <laughs> it is, right? It is. And, but I remember like sort of 2000, okay, so I got there 2003. It took me a few years to just kind of get acquainted, get a studio. Like time just goes by so fast when you go to move to another city, right? Like you have to find a studio space. So I got a studio space, then it didn't work out. Um, so 2005, 2006, 2007. And so I just remember hearing about Bar 25 a little bit more and needing to figure out how to get there. And that's what I was trying to recall. I don't remember. (laughs) I don't remember what the first introduction was to it. So why did you, well, I just talk us up through the kind of, uh, the decision to move to Berlin and you know and then getting there like so you'd obviously been you know running nights and, and been a pretty important part of what had been happening in Toronto in the late 90s so what what brought you to moving to Berlin in, in 2003? Yeah I think like I had a nice residency in Toronto with uh, which was called Fuck House at Industry Nightclub which was a big nightclub that was a predominantly house nightclub and my partner Ian Guthrie at the time went up to the owners of them and said you know what about doing a techno night and we'll call it fuck house and that became a really big thing we had brought in Rich and Mills and 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 
um, a ton of other people, Advent, things like that. And then that sort of, that club closed, and then we were all into smaller venues, and um, I went to Berlin. I think I had applied for a grant uh, here, like a Canadian grant. There's a, there's a lot of, like Montreal is a city that is... Um, like all their festivals, a lot of them are like government sponsored and stuff. And so there was a couple of groups that were sponsoring electronic music artists to go to Europe. So basically they would tap the sort of arts funding and, and make sure it doesn't all go to like ballet dancers and classical musicians, you know, and they would tap it for like uh, an electronic music. So they gave me like $10,000. And I think they, it was like an IV drip. They gave you a thousand a month for, a, for 10 months and they expected you to go to Europe. And I went to Europe and we had to go to the Manchester MIDI school. And then I went to Berlin and I just, of course, at that time, it just it felt so different than Toronto. The air was clean. There was no smog. We were on bikes. The conversations were great. You know, we would go to like, I was, I met Nura and Karsten and all Tosh and all this crew and Ingo and Marco, probably a lot of the people that you know, Exercise One and all, all these people that were in the music business. And it just seemed relevant. You know, there was young people that were smart and they got jobs in the music business and there was gigs available. So th that was it. I just I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, I had taken a year off working, per se. I had saved enough money um, and I, I want to follow production. So that was in Canada. And then the natural step was just to find someplace that once the grants ended, that would be able to support sort of this you know, hobby going to professionalism. And and so those were the main steps. And I didn't go to Berlin with a lot of money. And I didn't go there with like a lot of contacts. I just went with a lot of gusto. And um, yeah. <laughs> How much were you aware of the uh, sort of, I guess, the the wider political context at the point? I mean, this is like 10 years after the war came down or, the, or thereabouts. Like how much of that was in your mind and just in the air generally? Well, I think... It was always, I was always cautious to not be an invader, you know, and be part of like the scene per se and be a contributor because people I felt had gone through a lot to develop Berlin, even though Berlin was lacking a lot of things that somebody from North America requires. Like I felt there was a lot of space in other areas to contribute. And this is eventually what led us to opening a restaurant and, and bar in Berlin. But I felt like on the music front, I, I didn't want to tiptoe, but I also wanted to pay homage and respect to the people that had laid a lot of the foundations, like people like Ellen Alien and, and people that came from the East and obviously went through a lot more hardships of developing the city than I would just landing there, right? So that was my political context. And then I met Garrett from WMF, VMF, and he was a promoter, but he was more of a, an architect and a space designer. And he really informed me about the policies of what existed in Berlin to draw people like him from other Berlin cities and give them subsidies to come and how little he had to pay for rent and 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 how much 
time and energy he spent just looking for spaces and talking to landlords and finding the people that he could rent these spaces up. That's such an interesting aspect of Berlin was like finding and chasing down the owners of these spaces so that you could either do parties. Eventually that became the same thing that real estate agents did to transform Berlin into condos and other things is they had to find who the owners and the titleship deeds of a lot of these places, which people didn't know, you know, and for parties, it was just like, that was much easier. But so there's always, it's always been a bit of this El Dorado of, of, of industrial spaces. And so I was always aware of that politically. Are there any specific examples you can recall of, of that? phenomenon well yeah i mean i think uh, uh, garrett from from vmf at the time again this was a long time ago he would just be able to find these sort of interesting spaces and like your mind was blown as a north american because of like the you know the a, the space, the industrial nature of the, uh, we're a litigious society in North America, you know? So you're like, you're like, what? Like, they just gave you this or you could just do this? Like, you know, and this was the same thing in the playgrounds when eventually I had children. I was like, how could this be built, you know? And Germans really feel, and Europeans in general, and you feel it when you go hiking in the Alps, like that, that sort of path would never exist in a North American context, right? Like going up the Alps and, and like and fearing for your life. And it's the same thing in the playgrounds. And then it also went into sort of like the allowance of letting people go into buildings. And I think that was really cool. And eventually that changed. So a specific context, I just remember being amazed. And and then also being amazed by where restaurants could hold one-offs and stuff. And Garrett always told me, he goes, a foreigner, when he comes to Berlin, he wants to be close to the cafes and the bars. And so they choose apartments in these sort of areas. But a lot of the Germans that had lived in Berlin for a long time, they chose to live in places that were further away and allowed them to be more creative, you know. Like they, they, they offered more space. And eventually this is what's led me to Friedrichshain because I, I could then find a big place there, right? And the space is phenomenal when you think about what you're getting. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the possibilities must have been endless. I mean, like I'm, I arrived in 2007 and it felt like there'd, there'd been an incredible amount of change already. I mean, obviously there was, that turned out there was a huge amount of change yet to come at that point. But I mean, I guess it must've just been, you know, just that little bit more, you know, five years or so prior to that. Cause I mean, it's, it's, I mean, just the state of the place when the wall did come down is it's almost impossible to imagine. I mean, just looking at the photos of it, uh, it's, it's pretty mind blowing. Um, just the extent to which it was like, you know, almost indis indistinguishable from, as we said, like, you know, the end of the Second World War, right? I mean, just like so much of it hadn't even been rebuilt or even attempted to have been rebuilt at that point. And that history is so fresh, like that, that history was still so fresh, right? Like the scar, like they're, they're, they, they were scar, they are, they were scars, you know, like you could still see bullet holes in buildings. 
like edges of of buildings you could see where shrapnel basically blew off chunks of wall a lot of that's been like fixed you know but some sites have left it so that you could witness it and and so it was just scarred you know and i think i got there at a time where there was some creature comforts and so i was okay because you know a lot of the times when i met people i had to remind myself like possibly like their success or where they are or whatever like there might only be like 200k from their house, their home, you know, their regular stuff. I was coming from Canada, so I still wanted some sort of, I remember one time at, like, Love Parade and uh, playing at WMF, uh, VMF, and then my, like, my gig got cancelled and I was really depressed. And I think I went to, like, Potsdam Platz to have, like, a North American experience and I ate chicken wings, you know? Like, I just, I needed, like, I needed the creature comforts of North America. So I went to the most North American place in Berlin. And when Lee Curtis and Ryan Crossan and all those guys live in Berlin, anytime where, like, it started getting a bit dark or the weather got to us, we would go to Tony Roma's at, and we would eat ribs. And for a minute, we were just like back in North America, which is so kind of sad. But we were like foreign, you know, we were foreigners. We were far away. Like we missed mama, right? <laughs> like yeah, yeah, just... yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that at all. So what were the, when you arrived, what were the key clubs? VMF. So WMF. Mm. Um, and that is the original incarnation because it had moved, didn't it? Yeah, point. it moved. It it was called uh, VMF or WMF because of its um, it's it was in a building that was the warehouse that used to make like the VMF plates and uh, cutlery and other things, and then eventually it moved into Mitte. I can't remember the street name exactly. Um, really centralized, but again, like I remember going there for the first time. I went with Jake Fairley, um, and it just felt like. The streets were so dark. It was wet. It was rainy. Like nothing felt developed then. We stayed at Marco at Ramschmier's house for the first time, and he was in Friedrichshain. And we just were like, should we? We go explore at night and be like, I think we should stop. There's like, there's nothing down there, and there's no lights. Like it just felt really dark, you know. So VMF, what were the other? Uh, VMF. There was casino at that time. Um, there was a lot of like, I never, I never heard of casino actually. What was, where was that? That was along. Oh man, <laughs> I should open Google maps up. Well, that was just behind Ostbahnhof. So that was, that was cool. Again, like I wasn't playing so much at that time. Right. Like I, I had come, I had a record on VMF and, uh, they gave me some gigs and then it was about trying to get out, like, out of town more. Trezor was also going on. But I have to say, like, Trezor is, like, a lot more hype now than it was when I first got there, I think. I mean, it's like all clubs. They go through waves, right? Um, Watergate was um, a drum and bass club. And then there was a few other, like, one-off spots. And, uh, and then there was Maria. Maria at Ospenhoff. And so I used to play there a lot too. Um, and But I think things really transitioned when I first started playing Watergate. Like that was to me like you know, the club that had a future and knew what was going on, you know? Yeah. So when did that open? I don't know when it opened. Uh, but after you got there though? After you got there? Yeah. 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 I think so. And um, I don't remember when the residency started. I think 2006. And so... 
I had a residency there and they had invited me and I said, there's, I'm a, I'm a DJ and producer. There's no way I can do this on my own. So I invited Alex from Vacant um, to help me with it. And that worked out really well. Uh, okay. So let me, let me, let me stop you there. Uh, 2006. So we're kind of, this is deep in the kind of minimal, minimal era here. So how would you, have to, how do you define your sound around then how it developed after you moved to Berlin in terms of what you were making and what you were playing? So I, yeah, I'm trying to recall now. So I remember like kind of being just techno, like, like we were talking about this stripped down sort of techno, right? That we were playing, like it hadn't been defined as minimal. I think the minimal sound, like that tag had come up a while back for like the Studio One releases, you know, from Wolfgang Voigt and and Richie at the same time was doing his stuff. He was doing his his sort of minimal sound back then, but it it, it just didn't get deemed minimal as much, right? And um, so then I remember being at Bar Twenty Five, and I was talking to somebody, and at that time the Argentinians were really coming up, like Barum and Seth, and um, that was really. A definitive sound and then there was Bruno Ponsato right so who's doing like this sort of like really weird and this sound fit really well with bar 25 to me there was a lot of people playing in my opinion a lot happier sort of upbeat music at bar 25 and to me it was like a social center and it was and it was about playing a bit weird so uh, I also remember meeting Butane at this time. So Andrew Raz, Raza. Um, I think I'm saying his last name proper. Yes, yes of course. Um, and he was also a big proponent. There was Sean, someone else, um, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Um, and so, and then there was the artists that were coming to Watergate. There was Matthias Kaden and the Wynomi brothers, right? So the Wynomi brothers were really sort of the first minimal superstars of that era um, at, at at Watergate. There was people that had been around for a long time making like a stripped down sound, Low Soul and the Playhouse. And, and so there was that sound, but it hadn't really crossed over into like this Berlin sound yet, you know? And then the, then there was such a huge amount of artists, Berlin artists during that time, Daniel Dreyer and uh, uh, Benno Blome and all these guys, you know? So there was really this sort of sound, but I feel like at the time at, Ber at, at, at Watergate, we were still playing sort of like a clubby minimal sound, you know? It still had to work. It was a relatively big enough club, you know? So you, you it had to be driving and p propulsive, right? Okay, so the uh, residency at Watergate, tell me about that. Yeah, I think what we were doing was every two months or every three months, basically. So it wasn't monthly. I remember that. It wasn't monthly. Um, and and so that was nice. It gave us a lot of time. Alex was doing Vacant at the time. And, the, and, the, and his label had kind of exploded with Alex Smoke. So there's another character that was really big at the time for, for us, for sound. I think Alex, this was before Alex Smoke was DJing, right? 
he was he was only playing live and he was on soma and so again like you have all these labels now that are still in existence you know so alex smoke on soma was a big thing and and here was this glaswegian artist that was coming in and playing this sort of um very propulsive minimal sound uh with a lot of energy and it was live you know so that was really cool and so we did a series of these parties. It felt really connected to me for me because our artist at the time, Simon Leville, who was in Montreal, was doing all the flyers. So it had a real nice cohesive feeling to it. It matched the label. It matched Vacant. Um, and uh, Onar Uzer was coming at that time too. And um, so that was pre-Cocoon era, he had started making it onto Cocoon. So, you know, things were really sort of coming together for all of us at that time. And then from Watergate, I think that's when I really like made the transition to, to touring, you know. At first, I, I was in Berlin, and I remember the Watergate guy is kind of getting mad at me, like just saying like, you can't play so much in town. And I was like, fuck, like, like I don't have a job. You know, like, I know you want me to be your resident, but to me at that time, it was, I, you know, since I've retired for a bit and come back, I was like, the number one thing I recommend to any young DJ is like, just get a job, you know, like, make sure that you can stick to your values and, and you can make music as you want and you can take the gigs that you want. But at that time I didn't. And so a lot of other promoters in town want to recreate this Watergate vibe, but like on a, on a watered down scale on a Thursday night at a shitty club. And sometimes I would take those gigs and, and just be like, well, okay, I understand. I really need to hit the road. I really need to get out, you know? And so this is, then it all started to move like that, but it was always difficult. That's people talk about like the difficulty now, but it's always kind of felt difficult. There's never been a great time to be a DJ. Like it's just always feels tough, you know? And it, yeah, I think if if you're pushing a sound, which is kind of new and distinctive, you know, like where there's maybe, there may be some hype around it, but it's like, you know, if you're bringing something uh, f- kind of fresh it's not always the kind of it's not always the easiest sell because I mean lots of clubs play it safe understandably so yeah. you know yeah and I would be critiqued for being too dark sometimes and I would be critiqued for you know but I, I kind of stuck to my guns and, and adapted and then you know and then the minimal sound got ditched right like it really got ditched hard. It did, yeah. Let's just uh, until we before we get there. What was um? Do you remember what the what the best clubs or the most sort of memorable, some notable clubs that you uh, ended up playing? As you as you mentioned that you were touring a bit more. Like what were the what were the key parties outside of Berlin? In your opinion? And then? Well, I think yeah, I think it was just doing the circuit, you know, and being like you don't realize at the time, but like then. Like the well, I did, I did the excitement of going to Fabric for the first time, you know, and the excitement of just being at these places that you had seen. I remember getting, I think Craig Richards put um, one of my first tracks that was either on VMF or something on a on a comp, and so this was like these are the moments, right? Because Craig was also kind of playing minimal at the time, and 
And again, everybody brought like good DJs bring their style to a sound, even if the sound has changed. It's the same thing with techno now. And the good DJs can enter and, and exit hype sounds with class, right? And I think this is, I think he did that well. Like this was a great comp. And so those were the first steps. And then it was playing Rex Club. And then it was, you know, um, playing all these sort of classic clubs. You just kind of like, you're just, you, you're wanting to notch them on the bedpost, right? Like you're like, oh yeah, cool, fun. Yeah, great. And some of them are great. And some of them are maybe less than expected. But it's also just meeting these contacts and stuff. So I definitely think just sort of getting to the big cities because I had felt really sort of provincial in Berlin for a while, right? Like I would kind of go out on the S-Bahn or I, not the S-Bahn, like the regionals to some smaller things and come back. And and um, I need I needed that to survive, you know, I needed to go out and see those big cities again because Berlin can get really sort of dark and sort of um, a grumbly and it, it really affects your creative output. So, yeah, it can be quite parochial, can't it? It can be quite inward looking, I find. Yeah. Yeah. And like, again, you know, often your spaces are not always in the most ideal situations or in most ideal locations. Right. So getting out into the cities and and really seeing the world uh, became really good like it became really energizing and there was a f and and at that time Matthias Kaden was like really sort of blowing up too so he was playing around and so it was inspiring you know it was an inspiring time like of course there's some co competition but it was just nobody had really been that big before we were all together and it's not just that Watergate did that but you know, also at that time, there was a big movement of people coming into Berlin and I had a home to invite people. I brought Seth to Watergate for one of the first times and, and Ryan and the Vision Quest guys, right? I released Lee Curtis at that time. And it, we had the, we had the sort of vehicles to host people, which felt really great. You know, yeah, I hadn't mentioned the label actually. Uh, so let's talk about that for a moment, which is uh, Dumb Unit. Like, when did that? When did that start? So it started in two thousand and one, and that was with Jake Fairley, and we had pressed our own vinyl and did all the like mistakes. You know, had boxes sitting around. I was talking to Dustin Don about that, just about like. How many? How much back catalog is in parents' basements? You know, <laughs> so much of my, in my parents' basement, <laughs> right? But I did have to clear it out eventually. But um, and then it moved quite quickly. We we got onto compact pretty early on, and you mean for distribution, right? Compact distribution, yeah. And this was uh, we had done Neuton at first, and uh, they just didn't really pay attention to us. Like you really need to. The best distributor, the best booker, the best anything is the one who picks up the phone and talks to you, right? There is no there is no unicorn in any of this. It's just how you develop a relationship. And I think I have a great relationship now with Josh at Ingroves. Um, and I had a great relationship with the team at Compact. And before I moved to Josh, I don't think I realized how important it was to be like that like I, I compact always paid on time they always 
they always put the records out there and stuff. So the, yeah, so that was 2003. Yeah, that is an underrated attribute for a distribution, distributor, right? It's super important. So yeah, so we started 2001 and then that was pretty sporadic, like every six months, every year. And then maybe about 2005, 2006, we really leaned into it. I think the first record that really picked up for us was Butane because we tapped a weirdo minimal sound at the right time and it it evolved from that then i started getting cool demos i i met the other north americans there's sean someone else there's lee curtis there's the vision quest guys and that's when it it, it just it, it it's about convergence right like it, it's funny like you need to have the things in place to make the convergence happen like luck happens by being organized they say and i think that's just what happened right yeah and i think um it's the convergence of of forces like you said but i mean having a like a defined scene which is kind of self-supporting you know really helps you know and when that starts to take off it's just like the kind of rising tide lifts all boats right Yes, absolutely. We uh, we talked about that on the show last week, actually, and um, yeah, actually, in fact, this is something which is maybe worth discussing a little bit. Like the just the kind of um, uh, the phenomenon of having like a, a geographically located small scene whereby you know there's, there's a few like-minded people who are, who are, I think, producers in particular who are kind of um, egging each other on if I can put it like that, you know, to, to, to push things harder and, and, you know, a good natured competition element to it too. So it was, is that the kind of thing that, that was going on then for you guys? Yeah, I think so for sure. Uh, but I also think it like led to some anxiety in terms of production, like occasionally, like you can do all this and you can be a label owner and, and, and you could be setting up great platforms for people but if producing is still important to you and you're doing all these things um it often becomes like an afterthought and i think during this time while like there was this sort of group dynamic there was anxiety growing in me about production because a lot of the people that were coming over like lee curtis were only producing and they were like great producers you know and i was like being exposed to really good music by signing it. And so I was really excited to sign it and put it on the label. But I was also feeling like sort of uh, anxious about my own productions because I was like, this is really good stuff. If I ever want to produce properly, I have to like step up. It's got to be at this level, right? (laughs) Yeah, I got to step up my game. So what are the choices and how do you split that? Right. And and that becomes difficult because so you're you're traveling more, you're touring more. You, you have less days available, you have better music coming in, and you have more responsibilities, right? And, and so you, and, 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 I, and, you, and I was DJing a lot. So there's picking music, right? There's like searching and stuff. And so that becomes a very important part of sort of defining what your role is and, and, and what you want to be during that time, you know? Like uh, Alex from, Alex from Vacant, one thing I really, really respected about him was that he never fucking DJed and he never came in one day at a bar and said, you know what? 
like I'm just going to DJ now, right? Like he he <laughs> and he was very upfront about it. And he said like, "Oh my god, you you think I'm anxious now? Imagine if I had to like go and travel for a paycheck." And he's like, "Oh my god." So he picked his role, right? And he was very good at it and the label really picked up and he and and he's working for Watergate the label now. And he's working for Vale and a few other labels doing the right thing. So he 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 knew his role and he did and he excelled in it, right? And I think that's really important. And 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 so, anyways, yeah, um, there was a really big movement, but there was also that a- anxiety of sometimes there being a lot of artists. And I know this also happened in Cologne, right? In Köln, that there was a small scene and ton of artists, and there was a really competitive nature there. And so you have to balance that. You have to balance that. And and you have to pick really like the true friends of that bunch of who you connect with and who relates to your music. And because if you're bringing somebody into the studio to give advice, you have to make sure it's good. Right. Like you you have to trust it. You really have to trust it. Yeah. I mean, that anxiety point absolutely resonates with me. I mean, I've had basically the same experience and I find what what happens with me is uh, like, you know, trying to juggle, as, as you said, like running a label, DJing, producing. And what I find is that at any given point, one of those is being neglected quite badly. <laughs> and so whichever one is being neglected is the kind of source of anxiety. And then you kind of like drop, you know, pick up, pick up that ball and then by definition, drop another one. <laughs> and so it's this kind of constant thing of like, shit, how do I maintain these three things in the air at once, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I did get, like I did get more professional. Like I had people working with me. I had Ingo Ganzero, I think you know from from Exercise One. He was a label manager for a while, and he came from K Seven, so he was really organized, you know. And we were doing payments, and we had and we had um, uh, everything organized and sort of royalties and and and, and uh, distribution, and and that was good. But again, and we can get into this maybe in another phase is then vinyl, the vinyl industry collapsed, right? Yeah. Okay. So what was, uh, <laughs> what was your, what was your experience of that? Was there an, an uptick in unsold boxes of stock lying around? Cause that's definitely what we had. Well, right before the sort of collapse or right before like the existence of like Beatport and, 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 and digital downloads and tractor and all that, we had had really good years. You know, we had really good records and we were constantly selling 3000 2000 1500 it's you know for a little label that's enough that's enough to that's enough to pay an office rent and in berlin especially and to have a label manager and and maybe a little bit more right and and that was pretty good for them because again we were young and and we knew it was going to be better and then sort of it really went down like it just the the numbers just what what year are you pinpointing there as the turning point well okay so i mean bport is really important source of my income now and so and again they also they always pay on time and they always like you know and it and i know people there and so um it is what it is, but it was kind of around the existence. It is was at the birth of Beatport and the birth of Tractor and a birth of before the CDJs. People just got interested in new technology. So what year was that? I don't know. Was that 2009? Yeah, that sounds plausible. Maybe a bit earlier, but yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, maybe a bit earlier, right? So I could I could uh I could go on Beatport and see where our catalog was at that time. Um and and so then the so we went to from selling you know, that kind of numbers to more like 400, 500, 600 and splitting it with and was splitting it with digital downloads. You know, I loved running a record label and I loved making vinyl and I loved designing vinyl and making the graphics, but I did not like playing it. And I'll admit it, you know, like I just, I didn't like <laughs> yeah, it. Right. I didn't like carrying it around. I didn't like all the technical things about it. I liked it from an artistic standpoint, but as a f- very busy DJ, I, I despised it. Right. And that was a big dichotomy because I was like, fuck. And I remember Mikael Meyer saying that too. He said, like, a lot of these DJs are pushing their labels, but they're all playing digital files. So, like, where is that? You know, and here's a guy, again, that, like, they had just built their store, the the second location, and it was huge. And there was this huge dip in vinyl. And for me, I thought, like, well, if I'm only selling this number and everybody else is only selling this number, how is a place like that going to survive? You know? And I don't know. I've never talked to them about if that was a difficult time. But they they've seen it through at least right, and but for us that was a more difficult time. And I know that we couldn't. Ingo and I talked, and we couldn't afford to have a label manager anymore, right? And it just so that was a big change. That was a big transition. Do you think that was damaging to the scene as a whole, or, or how how damaging was it to the scene as a whole? Do you think that general shift? Um, I mean there. Were, one way or another, something was going to happen techno- technologically, right? Like the CDJs, I don't know what comes first, like the chicken or the egg. Did the CDJs, were they coming first? Or did, were they a byproduct of knowing that we needed to play like digital downloads? You know, like had was somebody at Pioneer already like formulating this? Like it's kind of like when the, you know... That you see an obelisk in, in sort of Peru or whatever, and and also one in Egypt, like which was like aliens or connections. So I often like, how did these two things appear at the same time? And it's just a general way that technology goes, right? And so if there wasn't Beatport, or if there wasn't Juno Download or any of those things, like I'm not sure if it would have stopped like sort of the invention of the CDJ because somebody else was thinking the same thing as me. I dislike carrying vinyl. I dislike playing vinyl, you know, but that's a bit of a shame because I enjoyed the culture of vinyl and I enjoyed the culture of record shops. It was simply it as a carrier of sound and, you know, maybe that I'm lazy. And that probably angers people that run record shops, right? And I was aware of that. I was aware of that, like, at Compact and stuff. Like, never talking down on vinyl, but also admitting that, like... But it was never the same. Sure. I mean, yeah, you you mentioned the kind of importance of building relationships with record shops and that whole kind of ecosystem, because I guess that's the kind of major fallout here, right? That's kind of what has been lost, the most, most important thing probably that's been lost, other than the money, obviously, which which obviously helps labels and all that. But like, just, just the, the wider cultural kind of support, I suppose, of that record shop ecosystem, which has really been hollowed out totally in this intervening period but that becomes very tough on a on a record store 
because they always have to have something new. Whereas before, and it works the same as in bookings, there was five or six agencies or six or 10 agencies or six or 10 distributors, you know, but now everybody is pushing stuff into record stores. And that becomes really hard for record stores because they always have to feature new things, right? And and their or the the administrative side of ordering a few of everything is really tough. You could order 20 or 40 of something before. I remember like when we were talking about the record store with Play to Record, like there was no concept of having like a techno buyer for a long time in Toronto. It was just like the owner and he would be like he would say I got 50 bucks or 500 bucks to bring some techno records in, right? And I'll mix those up with the Soka records. And then eventually, you know, places brought in buyers for those sections because that's only, that makes sense, right? Like get a specialist, right? And um, and so those kind of things were lost. And they, they still survived, but for uh, many of us that all of a sudden saw most of our income from coming from digital downloads, this was pre-streaming too, right? And there was a lot of bootlegging and uh, a LimeWire kind of stuff then too, or maybe not LimeWire, but a lot of like stuff on like Russian and and uh, download sites, you know. Yeah, I mean this this period is, was not a good one for recorded music generally. I mean streaming gets a bad kind of rep, but actually the overall revenues have gone up quite substantially since streaming became a big deal. Certainly compared with this era that we're talking about you know obviously the physical product era is something different entirely but this kind of mid-period of uh, itunes and, and beatport that stuff it was just it wasn't great <laughs> at all yeah and there wasn't the exposure i mean like that's there's good and bad parts about that of course there's there's a ton of negative connotation because i feel like now there's so little money in the music industry no, there's so little money in making music and there's a ton of money in the music industry because that is obvious that a ton of people just can't survive making music. They have to go over to the tech companies. They have to go manufacture gear. They have to go work for software companies. So they're still immersed in the music industry, but they're not surviving on artistic merits. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think like the, uh, I think the decline of vinyl was... It was probably more gradual, um, and then it kind of hit different parts of the kind of um, the scene, or certainly different, you know, different genres, different um, you know, appetites for certain styles at different points. Because uh, you know what the kind of stuff we were putting out at that time, the kind of bass music, basically type stuff. Um, I think it held up relatively well when compared to. Like house and techno, because I think house and techno embraced the digital thing that bit earlier. I think it made made a bit more sense because it's mixing music. Yeah, 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 totally. So, okay, now you mentioned the kind of bursting of the minimal bubble, as it were. So, <laughs> should we should we tackle this now? Uh, what? Why? Why? What happens? To tell me. <laughs> well, I mean, I think. I, I, okay, it's good that we're talking about Bport at this time, right? Because it's just it's got a business model that needs to put like the new things up front, right? And it's got to put like things that sell. It's like anywhere, you know. But it's it's a microcosm of like how a record shop work. Like so, but <clears throat> whereas record shops around the world could put up thousands of different records on walls, like Bport has one worldwide record shop wall, right? And either you make it on that or you don't. And 
I think what happened was in Berlin, there was just an oversaturation and the minimal that was on the minimal section in on Beatport just wasn't minimal anymore. Like they've taken, they've gone through great pains now to break open their genres to really sort of um, build a more reputable way of seeing where music is. They also have these hype charts and things like that allow people to sort of get on charts, even if they're not the biggest records, because they realized that this was just an oversaturation. So the, if we start at Beatport and go to the clubs or start on downloads and records, the music that was in the minimal section wasn't minimal anymore. It was like chunky, funky, monkey carnival music, right? Like it just, because people see where genres exploding and then they get in and the, problem is that there's often there's DJs or no there's producers who are much better at producing any genre of music than are the producers that are producing their genre like you could just give them the template and ask them to produce I'm not necessarily talking about a ghost producer but just a producer in general that can replicate what's going on like they just listen they say, oh, it's like a baseline like this and that. And so that stuff fills up the charts. And that happens in all genres. That you just have like sort of producer extraordinaires that can bang things out really fast, whether they have a team or whatever. And so what was there was not minimal, it was a different sound. And and so then when the clubs hear that and when the punters hear that, they're like, Well, what the fuck, right? Minimal is garbage. Right. Minimal is like, fuck this, like, like pull out, pull out, you know, and the clubs had to pull out because there was this backlash. Right. And you don't like the dance floor has a short memory. And, you know, like if you look at cheesy clubs in North America or something like they always change their interior. Right. Because they just have nothing else going for them. Like people just get bored of the interior. So they gut them and they do new interiors. But in Berlin, it wasn't that way. So they just changed music. Right. Like they just. And so all of a sudden, Tech House was kind of in, right? And we went through this like period of like getting out of the dark and into things like horns and and Tech House and <laughs> every side has ugly sides, right? <laughs> like it's yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was really noticeable in what was getting played at Panorama Bar. That was that was my kind of window into it. Uh, suddenly, it seemed like we went from this kind of minimal thing, which was getting played there the first few times I went to Panorama Bar as a as a punter, and then suddenly it was like disco and stuff getting played. It's <laughs> just like shit. This is yeah, different. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it was happy. And but meanwhile, at the same time, I think like now that I look back, I think I was paying too much attention. I had my ladder leaned up on the wrong wall a bit, you know, to to be involved in that. Because, like, now I see, like, when you really see, like, kind of what the Bergheim sound that was developing, or um, uh, it's it's evading my, um, the parties, the techno parties that were going on at Arena and that, like, that was still going on, right? But it's not so easy just to step out of where you you are, you know, and I find like quitting music for a few years helped me do that. I could reset and I got back into like my 
you know, my, where I was when I originally started, you know? Yeah. So at what point did you, did you take that decision um, to give it a break? I mean, the year my, the coming up to the year that my son was born, it was just kind of like a crappy year. And I was like, I can't do this. You know, I have to somehow support the family. And my wife had been doing, that was 2013. And I was playing, but it was like, again, like, Things were okay, and and it was busy, but it just wasn't on the level that I wanted it to be, you know? It wasn't on the level that it was, and it wasn't on the level that I felt was what I got into the music for or the business for. And and that's not just, like, it's not a business decision, but it's just, like, it's also a fun decision, right? Like, Like, if you're really, like... You know, like I wasn't seeing the big cities as much anymore. And like I wasn't seeing and and then that just that wears you down. And I felt like I really needed that energy of like big city life to come back into Berlin. For, and then that would allow me to power through like maybe like a gray week in November. Right. You're like, oh, but I got a bunch of hot sauces from New York. Right. So I'm OK. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so 2013. I took a, I just took a break. My wife was running a restaurant with her brother and I came up to her and I remember I could have been in tears. I don't remember, but I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I've heard this story from many other people, right? Uh, like I, I can't do this anymore. Like, can I join you guys? I've, I've eaten everywhere around the world. I'm a good cook. Can I like, I need to change it up. Right. And so that was the big thing. And I said, like, we have a family now. And, you know, it's like I don't even have to go into details of like the excesses and stuff at that time, probably like a mix of anxiety before the child's born and anxiety of like your career kind of not on the rocks, but just not where you want it to be. Right. So, yeah. Tell me about the restaurant. How, how, what point? Well, how long had it been going at that point? Uh, from 2010. So it had been going uh, 2008 or 2010. It had been going from three to five years by that time. I think five years. So 2008. So I joined it. And it was already a bit of a hub of action for a lot of people, you know. And that was great. Like, I remember Ryan Crossan and a lot of the guys, just Seth lived up the street. And so they would come there a lot. That was even before, that was before I joined. So it didn't feel like I was going. I'm sorry, what's it called? It was called Aunt Benny. Yeah. So it was in Friedrichshain and it became very popular um, even before I like joined, you know, like it was, it was, it was bumping. So they had done a good job, but I knew that my wife was having problems with staff, like to hold on to people. And I knew that they needed help right and it felt like a good match and at the same time it kind of like felt like a bit of a a punishment to me or something that I was going to need to to do you know like I was like I, I'm going to the gulag to work things out for a bit for a bit right <laughs> <laughs> how much of a culture shock was that for you it was a big culture shock to go from being this individual whose schedule and and was all, all revolved around myself to to be thinking about other people. So it took me maybe two years to get out of this like taking things personal and 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 not knowing how to manage a team. Um, and I had like the experience of 
having been out in the world and doing things, but I hadn't ever managed anybody other than myself, right? I'd done labels and stuff, but it's different. It's different in the heat of the kitchen and it's different. And yeah. So, but after that, I really got along and I, I kind of, it was my, um, I was allowed, I, I was able to keep one foot in youth culture kind of at the time, you know? Because a lot of the people we were working with were young. And, and the stories eventually would come out like, oh, I used to DJ. It felt like so long ago, you know? Like, and yeah, so anyways, we can get into that after. But, but yeah, it was, a, it was a culture shock for sure. Okay. And how did it play out in your mind, like, in terms of what was the journey between sort of like, you know, wanting to quit and then having a new life essentially and then eventually wanting to get back into it like what was the journey there well i think you know the way i i quit was in a panic right i didn't do it in any sort of measured way i just i literally closed the door on my studio one day and i didn't go back to it i just yeah i just i was like that's it i'm done i'd been struggling with music and struggling with, and now when I look back, I can tell you like the reasons why and stuff, you know? Um, I mean, I've been sober for eight years now. And so a lot of these things were all a confluence of, of elements that just don't help in a studio, you know, they don't help. And so <clears throat> I remember quitting and just like, just walking away and my late, and my studio partner at the time, I just basically sold some of my gear and would like get back to me about stuff. And I'd sold a lot of good stuff, but I just didn't, I didn't want any part of it. I didn't, I didn't want to go back to the studio. I didn't want to feel it. I was busy. I had a new life and that's, I guess what I had done all my life. Right. And, uh, and so I comment like comedically, I didn't listen to like a kick drum for about a year, a year and a half. I couldn't stand the fucking sound of a kick drum. Like I literally, like I, people would play it in the kitchen. I was like, no, no techno, no. Like, like I just couldn't. No, it was like I had like PTSD against it, right? Uh, and I just couldn't do it. And and then eventually, you know, I would work with people, and I was like, what are you up to? And they're like, I'll go into Bergheim, and like, you know, and. And then, of course, see them the next Sunday and have to work with them, you know, and I'd be like, OK, like, you know, I went to the party. I didn't go to the party, so I don't want the hangover, you know, and I'd have to manage people. But overall, in our in our general conversations, I started to miss what I had left behind. Right. Like I started to realize, like, well, I can't just throw my youth out the door because I had a kid and and I had problems like I have to. I have to face this or else it's just going to burn on forever. And the people I worked with were, you know, and then there was a lot of people that I was working with that were girlfriends or boyfriends of people that are producing, uh, like Ryan Ford, his, his wife, his girlfriend, Marsh worked there and Ansem's, uh, uh, girlfriend, Sophie worked there. And so I was still connected and we had tons of regulars. Dasha Rush used to come in all the time. But it was weird to be on the other side, you know? But in the same way, like, it was nice because I still was connected. And for a long time, I was like, no, I think I'm good, you know? Like, I think I'm good. I don't need to be in music anymore. And then eventually, when you sort things out, and I'm, not, I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people, you eventually come to 
some sense of a sort of clarity and realize that you have to address the underlying issues of why you stop something, you know? Okay. Uh, <laughs> what conclusions did you draw there? Um, don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater was the main one, right? That sounds really corny, but like my studio never treated me badly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like my Waldorf Pulse that I sold for under market value never treated, never treated me badly. <laughs> like, right? My focal speakers, like, like, fuck, right? Like, I was just like, I, was, I just remember like an envelope of cash coming to the cafe and my, and my poor studio mate who was thankful for it because he got to use the stuff and then he was also moving. He's like, here's, I sold the stuff and I was like, oh, cool. Like, I could use a thousand bucks, whatever, right? And, but that's just like, that's painful. That's, you know. And you don't realize it right away. You just go back to the kitchen and <laughs> like chop onions, right? And you're like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. That's the onion that's making me cry, right? Like, it's like <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, how much of it was missing my making music? Because I mean, certainly from my perspective, I think if I was going to completely stop, that would be the, well, that would be the major barrier. You know, I can absolutely, I mean, I've had long periods of DJing and long periods of being away from that whole scene. I've always wanted to make music, you know? So how much of it was that? I think when you don't make good music for a while or you're very slow in the studio or if a lot of the sort of headaches have come from just not being a prolific producer, then it's very easy to just kind of chuck it out, right? Oh, I mean, it can be, it can be so to... frustrating. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And I try to teach that to people now whether it's in lessons or whether I'm just talking to friends to like understand that like sound works in weird ways. Like it could be affecting you mentally. Like if you have a big bass buildup in the studio or you don't like your environment or lighting or whatever, like there's a lot of psychological factors that go into making music, right? It's very intense. It's visual and it's audio and it, and it's audio. So you're like, it's not like being a graphic designer where you can have music playing in the background all day. Like you're really immersed in it. And so this takes a toll and then you mix that in with touring, mix that in with a lack of sleep. And so I found it really easy to like, I found it easier to let go of music than I did of letting go of the scene per se. And I don't mean partying or going, I just mean the social aspect. Cause all of a sudden then you're like in a kitchen and you're just sort of, you're managing stuff. And that was also okay. It's not like I went into a coal mine or something, right? Like I was still... I was still with people, but you, your ego, has, your, t your ego takes a little bit of a hit no matter what, right? Because like then you're coming out and yeah, there's a lot, there's a loss of status, right? Yeah, absolutely, you do have status as a DJ. Yeah, yeah you're wearing a an apron with like <laughs> smeared with avocados on it, and I don't think I ever wore Crocs, but you're getting pretty close, right? <laughs> and so, and so you know. You go out and see, I'd see Dasha and be like, how was your night? And she's like, oh, it's great. We're just getting back from Bergheim. And like, I was like, cool, you you know, um, I, I'm, your plate's coming right up, you know? And so, um, but you, you learn to accept it. And you learn that often you also have things that people might want or want to evolve to. And you have to be aware of that, right? There's a lot of people that are in music that want to quit. 
Yeah, I mean, a surprising amount when you consider that on paper it's you know, that person's dream job, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so these are kind of those things that I understand now in my, you know, maturity a little bit, and I want to help people and talk them. There's a lot more mental health resources now than there was I felt at that time. Maybe you just don't go looking for it if you, you know. Um, but now, at least in in the form of advice to producers or whatever, like it's always just like be aware and 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 take stock of what you have, right? And and what what do you love to do and what parts don't you like to do and try to farm some of that out and you know. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's actually something I had written down because one of the one of the interviews that I dug up as a prep for this conversation was with well you were certainly quoted in an article about mental health for, for djs like going mm-hmm. back this is going back a while i think it was 2014 interview we actually had tamsin Hamilton on the show recently talking about her book touring and mental health yeah. so this is something that you've obviously thought about quite a bit right yeah yeah for sure i mean like i just i feel like of course like my children save me right like like they they bring to light what you can't do for yourself and and so having a child helped me realize like where life needed to clean up just in general it's just it's it's just a me- it's a mess for everybody like it's a mess if you have flight delays it's a mess if you have um cancellations it's a mess you know it doesn't even have to just be uh the com- um the complex negativities of the scene. It's just, it's just difficult in general. Right. And so, yeah, mental health. Now I think like I'm producing more than I've ever produced because I have the mental capacity and the, and the sort of stable mind to get in on a regular schedule. The restaurant business really taught me a lot of that too. Right. And I've kind of got the joke where it's just like, make the fucking sandwiches, right? Like you don't have to, you don't have to overthink everything. The people outside are hungry and just feed them, right? And music isn't food. And that's a very important distinction. Like it has a lot more sort of um, meaning than just food. But at the same time, if you're an artist, you have to really learn how to just feed people feed yourself and feed people properly and quickly and do it well because it doesn't you don't need to spend countless hours i mean you do i don't don't know how to say it like i do i still pain over every hi-hat and how it sounds you know but i don't let it break me down mentally and i let it break me down mentally like i choked right in the sports terms you choke right and coming out of that is is really refreshing and there are everything points to i don't my friends never pointed out when things weren't going well like that i don't think friends do that but they've been really supportive on the other side you know so anybody that's going through like a very difficult time they might not be getting sage advice right now from people saying yo you know you're like out of control or your music sucks or you're you're a wreck but if you take a break and you come back they will be there to help you and this is what i've found you know i didn't get any advice then but now i think and now that's what my career is about is rekindling relationships 
Um, and, and that's a great thing, right? That feels really good because that, uh, it's saying hello to somebody you haven't said hello to in a while and also having the work to present to them, right? Because without the work, you're without work, you're really nothing as an artist. And that's heavy. Yeah, that's a important observation, actually. That's absolutely right. I mean, everyone says, oh, yeah, I've been making tracks and like, blah, blah, blah. But and, and that's just the standard conversation you have, right? <laughs> as a producer, but it's just like until you hear it, it means nothing, yeah. basically. Yeah, for sure. And the more complex the music is, the more complex the artist, the more they'll drift in and out of the scene, I think, you know, and that's okay. Like if you see somebody like Blauen or something, you know, who makes like just mind bogglingly complex and amazing music. And he's just often talked about that where he just doesn't, if, if he's touring and it's affecting his ability to make music, then he has to count back on the two cut back on the touring. Right. And I think that's a very ominous conversation that a lot of people are not willing to have. Totally, man. Well, yeah, this has been really fun. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, man. And for like all this work of putting these together, they're really eye-opening and insightful. And I can only imagine how much work it is to manage all these. Yeah, that was Jeremy P. Caulfield. What an interesting conversation. What an interesting guy. Great to have him on. I just really, really, as I mentioned at the top, really interested in that minimal aesthetic how it came about it's really i don't know it's quite a singular development it just doesn't really happen like that normally but hmm it was cool and um some of that music is just fantastic when i put a bunch of minimal in the spotify playlist this week so you can go back and uh yeah check some of it out if you're not familiar i guess some of you might not be familiar with it i guess probably quite a lot of you actually maybe it hasn't really been cool for a long time that kind of stuff but Anyway, I mean, it did get a bit of a bad reputation after a while. A bit of a, uh, I think it was a kind of a cynical rep, I guess, in some respects. But anyway, I think it's awesome. So I'm going to, yeah, stick some in that list. Yeah, there is a link to that playlist in the show notes, by the way. And you can also, if you wanted to talk about Minimal or anything else, join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. If you wanted to join that, there is a patrons only area of that Discord, but there's a normal person's... <laughs> if I can put it like that a normal person's area too we're not too snobbish in there so if you've got anything to say to me anything you want to talk about the show you know, requests, recommendations, feedback that's the place to do it hotflushrecordings.com slash discord and if you don't want to do the Patreon thing then you can leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast that really does help actually yeah so do that if you're not going to do anything else that I'm talking about here that would be nice and um, I will see you back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.